Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and, and care uh, for us, for your church, uh, for the grace that you have poured out upon us. Help us to never take that for granted. And Father, the time is, the time is ticking um, as we gather this morning. And so I ask that your spirit do what only you can do. Um, and you take the words of your scripture and you fulfill your promise that as they go out, they will not return void. And you take the words uh, that come out of my mouth and you do with them what only you can do with them and you make them effective uh, for the transformation of souls. Uh, we ask this, Lord, for your glory and our joy. Amen. Amen. So, whether you are on the college campus, whether you are at home having a conversation with your wife, whether you are planting a church in Richmond, whether you are planting a church in another country, God has created us to find our deepest joy in Him. And He has determined that the grace that He has poured out upon us would not terminate on us but that through our lives, others would be drawn to him. That through the dependency that we express in the way that we live our lives, through the joy that we express through the way that we live our lives, people who are far from God would be drawn near. It doesn't matter where you are. That is what God has intended for his people, that we would be a witness. And this morning, as we go through another part of Acts chapter 2, what I want us to see and what I want us to get uh, is to be sent out of here with a clearer picture of what it is we're actually to bear witness to. If God has called us to be his witnesses, then it's imperative that we have a clear idea of what it is we're actually to bear witness to. Because hopefully, as we'll see this morning and throughout the study of the book of Acts, there's really only one message that matters. There's only one message that matters when we think about being a witness, and it doesn't matter where you are. Our command to be God's witnesses is centered around the only message that matters, and that's the person and work of Jesus, period. We are to witness to the realities of who he is and what he has done. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up to Acts chapter 2. We've been walking through our beginning look at the book of Acts. And Acts chapter 2 unfolds for us in three great scenes. Last week, we looked at the first. I'll, I'll, I'll catch you up on what's happened so far, and then we're going to jump into what we're going to look at this morning, and it's going to be like a downhill roller coaster, if that makes sense to you. Um, so far, we've seen that um, Jesus, after his crucifixion and in death, was, was raised to new life, and he appeared to his disciples, and for 40 days, he spent time with his disciples, teaching them about the scriptures and how they all relate to him and, and convincing them, Luke says, with many proofs as to who he was and the validity of his resurrection and his victory over death. And, and his disciples were full of joy and anticipation at what this would mean for the future, of what this would mean for the life that they live here and now. And they had one particular idea of what that was. But before he ascended back to the right hand of God, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, here's the plan for how this is going to work out. You're going to be my witnesses from here in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And here's what's going to happen. I'm going to give you the power that you need to be who I've called you to be and do what I've called you to do. It wasn't what they expected, but we see as we went through the beginning of Acts chapter 1, they were obedient. And Jesus, in front of them, ascended back into heaven. And just as he had said, they returned back to Jerusalem and they began to wait. 
They began to wait for this promise that Jesus had told them, that this power would come, that the Holy Spirit would come and empower them to do and be all that Jesus had called them to do and all that he had called them to be. And their obedience was expressed in their prayer and their desperation and dependence upon that promise from God. They didn't just run out and begin to bear witness to what they had seen. They actually obeyed and waited because they realized the magnitude of the mission that God had called them on and the limited resources that they had, and that drove them to express that dependence in prayer and waiting in patience for God to fulfill the promise that he had given them. And we see that he did that very thing. Last week as we jumped into Acts chapter 2, we see that as the day of Pentecost came, God fulfilled the very promise that he had made centuries before that he had used the prophets before to point to. And he poured out his spirit upon his people, transforming them from the inside out and empowering them to be who he has called them to be and do what he has called them to do. But that was met with mixed reactions. That was met with mixed reactions. A crowd began to gather, if you remember last week, as the disciples began speaking in languages that were not their natural language. And the people who had gathered to celebrate Pentecost throughout Jerusalem, all all of the Jews who had been scattered throughout the land had come together to celebrate, they began to hear these Galileans who were not known for their capacity to speak multiple languages, speaking about the mighty works of God in their own languages. Some were astonished, some were amazed, some were perplexed, and we saw at the end last week that many began to mock them and say they must be filled with new wine. They must be filled with wine. They've got to be drunk. The only explanation is that they're drunk. So this morning, we're going to keep going. Acts chapter 2, verse 14, and we're going to see exactly how they address this. Verse 14, but Peter, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. And, And I don't, I can't resist. I know we have limited time. Did you bring your lunch? Hopefully you brought your lunch. Your kids are fine. Nothing's going to happen to them. I can't resist this. I don't, I don't want you to miss, I'm, I'm going to go slow all the time. I don't want you to miss what just happened here. Peter stands up, begins to address the people and the circumstance and the situation. Uh, hear me when I say this. At some point, our witness is always going to demand a proclamation. Our witness is always going to demand a word be spoken. I know it's great for St. Francis to say, preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. It makes a good t-shirt. It ultimately makes for a horrible witness. Because the message of the gospel is news. It is a word. And if we had the time to go back through all of Scripture and the way that God unfolded his message of redemption throughout redemptive history, you would see it always comes with a word. At some point, your witness is going to have to be accompanied with proclamation. You're going to have to say something. And so it's very important that you understand what it is you're supposed to bear witness to. That's what Peter is going to show us so clearly here. The central characteristic of his message and the messages that you see in all of the book of Acts. 25% of the book of Acts is given over to the messages of the witness. The message that matters is the message of Jesus. And at some point, you've got to open your mouth. At some point, you're going to have to say something. Let's, let's look at what he said. So, Jesus, so Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, and he addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, 
since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered by the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and vapor and smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The first aspect of this message that matters to the person and the work of Jesus that Peter shows us right here is that ultimately we have to understand Jesus as the promised fulfillment of all of the Old Testament scriptures. This is what Jesus spent so much time with his disciples doing after he was resurrected from the dead when he spent 40 days with them. Luke records that Jesus taught them how everything that they had learned, all that they had read in the Old Testament pointed to him. We have to begin to see and trust and know and love that all of the scriptures are pointing to Jesus, that he is the hero of every story, that he is the fulfillment of every promise. And the first thing that Peter does is a good witness. He takes an Old Testament text. He shows how its fulfillment is fulfilled in Jesus. And then he begins to apply it to the people who are listening to him. So the best way to understand first what's going on here at Pentecost and and what's happening is not just to look back at what Joel said, but is to look at what Jesus has already done. We don't look at the Old Testament to figure out what's happening. We look to see how it's fulfilled in, in Jesus. And as we do that, in particular with with this Old Testament text. I want you, especially those of you who come from a a more charismatic background, we don't need to to reread and and re-quote Joel as though we're awaiting something to happen. I want you to understand what Peter's saying. He's saying this very thing that you're seeing right now to those who are there is that. It's fulfilled. It's done. It's not partially done and we're waiting for the rest of it to happen. It's not something that was started but isn't finished. It's been fulfilled in your hearing, in front of you. This has been done. The last days, he says, are among us. They're among us. And so let me just clarify something for you as you were reading this. You don't need to go to any Middle East watch sites any last days, countdowns, any websites that are trying to connect all the events of the world to what may happen to determine if we're in the last days. Peter just said we are. We're in the last days. And I can say that to you with absolute certainty, not because of the news, not because of who's in power where and who's not in power where, not because of the price of oil and the value of the dollar. I can say that to you with certainty because of the person and work of Jesus and the fulfillment of the promise that God had made and told through the prophet Joel that he did right here in this time in pouring out his spirit upon his people. You can have absolute certainty that the promises of God have been fulfilled and are yes and amen in Jesus. So are we in the last days? Absolutely. We are. You can go ahead and whatever angst you've got about that, you can go ahead and let go of it. Whatever pressure you've got to figure out when that's gonna, it's already here. You can go ahead and sleep so much better tonight. You don't have to worry about that anymore. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament promises and scriptures and stories. So Peter takes a text, he applies its fulfillment to Jesus, and then he's going to apply it to his people. Simple witness, 
Simple witness, but always centered on the person and work of Jesus. So what must they know to be saved by the one upon who they're to call on? Now Peter's going to move on. Look at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So he's going to move on from Jesus being the fulfillment of the scriptures they were aware of. Remember his audience. These were Jewish people who were familiar with the Old Testament. They were familiar with the promises of Joel. So Peter took what they were familiar with from the Bible, showed how its fulfillment was in Jesus, and now he's going to continue on with the central reality of his message of this person, Jesus, and he's going to move on to Jesus' humanity. He's going to talk about this man who was real. He's going to talk about Jesus having been born, taking on the flesh of man, living a life. He lived just like you and I. He was a man just like you and I. He breathed in air. He ate food. He laughed. He coughed. He made jokes. He was funny. People liked to be with him. He was raised by a dad who was a carpenter. He lived a simple life in a rural town outside of Jerusalem. Peter's going to go on to talk about this man. And and here's one of the things that I think about that I think we're deficient in, and it's probably grown partly because of the the creeds and the, the work that was done before us. But if you've been familiar at all with the the great creeds of our faith, the Nicene Creed, um, you know that the one thing missing from the great confessions and creeds of our faith is the life and ministry of Jesus. He was born of a Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was raised. There's 33 years in between there they missed. The humanity of Jesus is often overlooked in our day. He was a man just like you and I, and it's important that you know Jesus the man, because it was Jesus the man who lived the life that you were created to live. It's Jesus the man who enjoyed the greatness and glory of God deeply and was tempted in every way as you and I are, yet was without sin. It was Jesus the man whose feet got dirty, who walked upon the face of this earth, who lived in our place. You've got to know Jesus the man. So Jesus continues to remain central to Peter's message, and we're going to keep going because you could take a sermon on all of these things. Ray, how do you do this in one day? How are we going to do this in one day? I don't know, man. This is, this is tough. Let's keep going. Verse 23, this Jesus who walked among you, who lived among you, who God attested with many mighty works as to who he was, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed this Jesus by the hands of lawless men. Now Peter's not going to move on just to the man, Jesus, and his ministry, lest we get caught up in looking at how benevolent he was and centered on all the things that he did, and we try to replicate the ministry of Jesus, missing the point of what Jesus was doing. He goes on to the crucifixion of Jesus and the substitution of Jesus in our place, not just in the life that we live, but to pay the price for the lives we live instead. I read this this week, the cross of Christ is the response of God toward men for belittling his name. Let me say it like this. The cross of Christ is because mankind, loved by God, created by God, put into place by God, betrays God, and prefers his stuff to him. Peter's now going to move on to the crucifixion of Jesus as a central reality of this message and witness. 
And he's going to say the cross of Christ was not some surprise or plan B for God. But rather the cross of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, the death of Christ in your place for your sins was part of the plan of God from the very beginning. It was not a substitute for God. It was not a last minute pencil in by God. It was according to the plan and the foreknowledge of God before he breathed life into Adam in the very beginning. God was not surprised by this. This was not a quick fix for him. God's response to the belittlement of his name from the beginning of time has always been the cross of Christ. It has always been the crucifixion of his own son in our place. That was God's idea. That was God's idea. It was God's plan. The death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus, the wrath-absorbing death of Jesus in our place for our sin. God's idea. And that writer went on to say that it stands that the death of Jesus will always be the central tenet of all we believe. I thought about that this week, and I want you to get this. Because I think we have a tendency to miss something here. The cross stands as the central tenet of all we believe, and I agree with that wholeheartedly, but listen to me. If you don't hear anything else I say, hear this. The cross never saved anybody. I want you to hear that. The cross never saved anybody. Only Jesus did. I want you to hear this. It was Jesus who did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped, but he humbled himself. He took on the form of a servant, becoming man like you and I. It was Jesus who came to this earth broken by sin, who lived the life that we were created to live, a life of perfect worship, of perfect obedience, and of perfect righteousness before God in our place. It was this Jesus who then humbled himself further in enduring a beating at the hands of the very people in which he created. It was Jesus who suffered their mocking. It was Jesus who suffered their torment. It was Jesus whose body was beaten to the point of death. It was Jesus who a crown of thorns was placed on. It was Jesus who a robe was put on and a staff was given to. And it was his person that was mocked in front of the lawless people that he had once breathed life into who continued to belittle his name and belittle his glory. It was Jesus then who humbled himself further to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it was Jesus whose hands were nailed to the cross, whose feet were nailed to the cross. It was Jesus who endured the suffering and the shame of the cross, who was stripped naked before all people who were watching and bearing witness. It was Jesus who lost control of his own bowels in front of all those people. It was Jesus who was mocked and spit upon. It was Jesus whose lungs filled up with blood to the point that he suffocated on his own blood. It was Jesus who died in your place for your sins. The cross itself never saved anybody. Only Jesus does. And the central idea that you've got to get when it comes to the message of being a witness is the person and the work of Jesus. It was Jesus who God vindicated by raising from the dead. It was Jesus who God then ascended to the right hand, who now sits and rules over all things that exist. Jesus is the central reality, the central tenet of our faith. The cross itself, though it stands as the central point and the central reality, the cross never saved anybody. Only Jesus does. So when it comes to being a witness and what's got to be proclaimed, it's got to be Jesus. And Peter's going to keep going. Does that make sense? 
Because here's the thing. If he simply died and was crucified, what's the point? What's the point? We stop short of the gospel when we stop at the cross. Look what Peter keeps saying. Look at verse 24. This Jesus, who you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Literally, I don't know what your Bible, which translation you're using, but literally that phrase right there means birth pains. And what Luke is trying to get at is there's a new birth going on right here with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. There's some type of new birth and, and regeneration being pictured here. God raised him up, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? It was not possible for Jesus to be held by death. For David says concerning him, he's going to now take another text. He's a good preacher. He's going to take a text. He's going to show his fulfillment in Jesus. He's going to apply it to the people who are listening to him. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced and my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, Peter says, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up and of that, we are all witnesses. If Jesus had been resided to the tomb and remained in the tomb, what's the point? The world has never been deficient in martyrs. The world has never been deficient in people dying for a cause. If Jesus went into that tomb and remained in that tomb, what's the point? But the reality of what we actually celebrate when we come together here is that the death could not hold him that God vindicating Jesus' life in our place and death in our place then raised him from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death in our place, and then he ascends to the right hand of God. Peter's going to get there in a second. Death could not hold him. That's what we celebrate. Jesus did not simply just die. If he just died, what's the point? What's the point? He's alive. Do you believe that? Does that make any difference to your soul? The witness with which we're to bear is to not just one who died a, a martyr's death for our sin, but who God vindicated and raised to new life, promising victory over death, the last enemy to be defeated that you and I in ourselves will never, ever, ever be able to defeat. He's alive. He's alive. Do you know him as alive? Do you know him as resurrected? Verse 33. Not just being alive, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Jesus, not just raised from the dead, but exalted to the point of position and power at the right hand of God, where he rules and reigns over all things that is. Jesus is the one 
who has authority over you. Jesus is the one who has authority over this city. Jesus is the one who has authority over all things that exist. And it is Jesus alone who is worthy of the worship of all people in all places and at all times. It is Jesus who sits at the right hand of God, the Father, ruling and reigning, and as he promised, fulfilled his promise, and in this place, in this time where Peter is speaking, he poured out the Holy Spirit that they were experiencing, who is now at work transforming, renewing, and regenerating those who call upon his name. Do you know Jesus as ruling and reigning? I don't have time to get into it, but if you're one who likes to say that Jesus has saved me, but I have not quite made him my king, I think you need to deal with the Bible. For Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God, and he rules and he reigns over all things. To say that you can trust him to save you, but he's not worthy of you serving. I think you've got to deal with your Bible. Peter's not done. He's not done. He's going to get the Bible back out again. He's going to go back to the Old Testament to David. Psalm 110, he's going to say, For David did not ascend into the heavens. But he himself says that the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, talking about Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The message of Pentecost, the central message of our witness the foundational message of our witness is Jesus. This speech, this sermon, this witness that Peter gives in Acts chapter 2 in Pentecost is all about the fulfillment of Jesus, all about Jesus fulfilling the promises that God had made for centuries to his people. This is the message of, of the gospel. This is the message of our witness. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. So when you think about being a witness, when you think about God sending you out to be his witness, know this, at some point your witness is going to demand a word. And that word is to be about Jesus. It's to be about Jesus. Look at what happens. What's the response to all of this? Look at verse 37. Now, when, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And, and I want you to catch something here. They were cut to the heart. I want you to notice the power. I mean, I want you to notice the impact. I want you to, to catch the depth of what's happening here. There is unbelievable power being demonstrated in this verse and what's going on right here. There is no other thing and no other message on earth that has the power to cut to the heart the way the message of Jesus does. This is a heart-penetrating, conscience-filleting, soul-laid-open power. Only the message of Jesus has that power. Peter couldn't manufacture it. I mean, he didn't get smoke. He didn't get mirrors. He, he didn't get a, a herald to come out and come before him. He, he didn't create an environment to, to get people into a particular place and use particular words to manipulate their response. There's no way that I or anybody else can manufacture this kind of power. This kind of power only comes, only comes accompanied with the message of Jesus. When you think about power and you think about being a witness and you think about being empowered to, to be who God has called you to be and you think about that, think about the message of Jesus. When you think about having power as a witness, think about the message 
of Jesus. Think of simply pointing to Jesus. Think of simply directing people to Jesus. Think of simply taking the circumstance you find yourself in and somehow connecting it to Jesus. When people make much of something they see in your life, simply take that and point it to Jesus. Simply point people to Jesus. That is the only thing that God has promised to accompany with this kind of power. This is being a witness. It's simply telling what you know. It's simply taking what you have experienced and what you know to be true and expressing it. That's all, that's all this really is. It's, it's really not that complicated. We don't have to try to remove pressure from you somehow. We don't have to be experts in comparative philosophies and contemporary religion and church history and systematic theology to, to bear a witness as a company with this kind of power. None of those messages, none of that knowledge, none of those systems can ever do what only the message of Jesus can do. All you're called to bear witness to is to the person and work of Jesus in your life, who he is, what he has done, and the difference that that has made. You don't have to know all those things. Don't be deceived into thinking that you have no power and no effect and no potential as a witness for Jesus because you don't know all those things. All of those things will just educate you into excuses for not doing the very thing he's called you to do. Trust me, I know. I know. The more I've learned, the more I know, the better I am at excusing myself from doing the very thing he's called me to do. No understanding of philosophy, theology, comparative religion, or world history will ever be accompanied by the power the message of Jesus is accompanied by. Being a witness is simply pointing people to Jesus. And something that hit me this week as I was reading this, and I don't know, maybe it'll mean something for somebody out there. I, it, it helped me a lot. When we read Acts chapter 2, and we think about the promise of God empowering us to be witness, be witnesses, and we see the power laid open here, and, and we can manage to get past the tongues and get past the wind and get past the fire and get to this real reality where hearts are being laid open when real power is actually being exercised upon the soul of men. It hit me all of a sudden that we don't simply just receive naked power. We receive a message. We receive a message that's full of power. That's what God has given us. He has given us a message that is unparalleled in its power. And that is why your witness will always have to be accompanied by a proclamation. And he has promised to give us all that we need to be who he has called us to be. And he has given us the most powerful message ever in the history of mankind. That helped me. I don't know. It might not help you. Did it help you? Help Ray. That's all right. I mean, Ray and I, we'll, we'll preach to ourselves. You don't want to come sit in the office. Ryan can give witness to that. You don't want to come sit in the office when we practice this stuff. Yeah, they're still here. All right. We have been given the most powerful message in all of eternity. And I'm convinced as I was reading it this week, that is why, and I've never understood this before, that is why the Apostle Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for the transformation of souls. He said he wasn't ashamed because he was convinced. He was convinced that the message of the gospel and the person of work of Jesus is the most powerful instrument that God has ever given us for the transformation of souls. It isn't buildings, it isn't programs, it isn't location, it isn't websites, it isn't articulation, it isn't knowledge. It's the message of Jesus. Living his life in our place. Dying 
to pay the price for the life we live and said, and God vindicating that and raising him from the dead. And not just that, him then fulfilling his promise to pour out his spirit upon all those who call upon his name. That is the central message of being a witness. And what happens, they were cut to the heart. When they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? I mean, you know Peter was still talking. We're going to get there in a second. They said with many words, he went on to keep talking. He preached like I do. He didn't have a clock. You just keep talking. And it's like the people were listening and saying, shut up, Peter. Enough. Enough. I get, what do I have to do? Their hearts had been cut and laid wide open. What, what do we have to do? And man, just listen to the simplicity. Peter said in verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent. Simply turn from any allegiance to any object or affection other than the one who has created you and the one who has come to rescue you and redeem you and the one who has come to restore you back to himself. Repent. Simply believe upon who Jesus is and what he has done in your place for your sins and turn to him with all that you are. Lean into him with all that you are. Repent. Don't miss the scandal of this message for these people. We're going to see the gospel and this message preached to a lot of different people in Acts, but this was preached to the church. This was preached to people just like you and I. This was preached to, to faithful Jews who had gathered to celebrate Pentecost. And the reality of it is the only people that repented in that faith were a few of the Gentiles called proselytes who, who had come to the church and who had become Jewish. They were the only ones who really repented. There was no notion really of repentance in that culture. And here's what Peter is saying. This Jesus is the fulfillment of all that you have studied, all that you have known, and all that you have hoped for. You are going to actually have to turn from all that you have trusted in within your own faith to this person. They had trusted in who their mom was, who their dad was. They had trusted in their ability to obey the law. They had trusted in, in God's pushing back his judgment and wrath for their sin through their sacrifices. And here's what he's saying. You now have to take all that you have hoped in, all that you have known, all that you have trusted in, and you've got to transfer that over to this person who died a scornful death on a tree, but who God vindicated by raising him from the dead. You've got to repent and trust him. Humiliating for a Jew. Not only that, he said then, in identifying yourself with the person and the work of Jesus in your place for your sins, you're to be baptized. You're to identify with Jesus in his death, in his resurrection. Do you know how humiliating that is for a Jew? And repenting and being baptized, they are saying all the trust and all the faith that I had had in who my parents were and in this act of circumcision for the men that had been done to me when I was eight days old, that was allegiance and fulfillment of an old covenant that God has now fulfilled a promise that he made to us in a new covenant that he was establishing. And the sign of being a part of that new covenant was repentance and baptism and identifying with this Jesus. That circumcision didn't get me anything anymore in this covenant. Humiliating for a Jew. Not something simple and easy to believe, not something simple and easy to do, but to take all that they are and all that they had hoped in, all their faith and all their hope and all their trust, and put it in this person who died in their place and God raised for their sins, and then identify with his life, his death, and his resurrection by going into the waters of baptism. It was humiliating for them. And this was the simplicity of the message. Repent and be baptized. And you'll receive the riches of the gospel.
Repent, be baptized, and enjoy the riches of the gospel, the forgiveness of your sins, the cleansing of your unrighteousness, the forgiveness, all the sacrifices could never clean the conscience. All the sacrifices could never take the weight of guilt off the shoulders and the soul. Repent and trust in this man Jesus who has been resurrected and who, of whom we were witnesses and of whom God has vindicated and received the forgiveness for your sins, complete cleansing, unimaginable mercy, only possible because of Jesus. Forgiveness has nothing to do with your pedigree, nothing to do with your knowledge, nothing to do with the family you were born into and the marks of a covenant you have on your body. Forgiveness comes from identifying and trusting solely in the person and work of Jesus. And you'll receive the promised Holy Spirit. We talked about last week. This long-awaited promise of God, not just dwelling with us, not just dwelling around us, not just dwelling amongst us, but dwelling in us. Taking out the heart of stone and replacing it with the heart of flesh and writing his law upon our hearts that we would desire to honor him, to know him, to trust him, to enjoy him deeply. This is the central message and reality of our witness. Peter had no buildings. He had no kids ministry. He had no dynamic worship ministry and a famous band. He just had men who were convinced that the most powerful message for the transformation of souls was the message of the person and the work of Jesus. The question is, are you convinced of that? The question is, are, are, are we convinced of that? Is Jesus enough? Is Jesus enough for the cultivation of gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded people and churches? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your commitment to your character and the fulfilling of your promises and of your word. Jesus, thank you for living the life that we were created to live and dying to pay the price for the life that we lived instead. And God, thank you so much for vindicating Jesus, accepting his sacrifice in our place, exhausting your wrath on him and not us, and raising him from the dead. Thank you for calling us to yourself. Thank you for compelling us to call out to the name of Jesus and to take all that we are and all that we hope and with all the faith that we have, lean into him and his work in our place and receiving your forgiveness, your cleansing. Help us, Lord, to enjoy the gospel daily. Help us to, Lord, enjoy you daily. And Lord, help us in the places that you have sent us to be your witnesses, to be convinced of the only true message being the message of your son, Jesus. Lord, do, do as you did there. Do great and mighty things amongst us. Let those who hear receive your word. Let those who hear identify with you in baptism. And Lord, we pray that many are added to their number. We pray that many in this city, through the witness that we would bear, would be added to your family and to your church. We ask this for your glory, Lord. Amen.